4 through 10. We'll read that, and our text will come from 1 John 1. We'll read that uh, after the next song. 1 John 3, starting at verse 4. One John three verse four. Everyone who makes a practice of sinning also practices lawlessness. Sin is lawlessness. You know that he appeared in order to take away sins, and in him there is no sin. No one who abides in him keeps on sinning. No one who keeps on sinning has either seen him or known him. Little children, let no one deceive you. Whoever practices righteousness is righteous, as he is righteous. Whoever makes a practice of sinning is of the devil, for the devil has been sinning from the beginning. The reason the Son of God appeared was to destroy the works of the devil. No one born of God makes a practice of sinning, for God's seed abides in him, and he cannot keep on sinning because he has been born of God. By this it is evident who are the children of God and who are the children of the devil. Whoever does not practice righteousness is not of God, nor is the one who does not love his brother. And so far the reading. The text today comes from the first chapter of 1 John. Starting at verse 5, verses 5 to 10. One John one, starting at verse five. This is the message we have heard from him and proclaim to you that God is light. And in him is no darkness at all. If we say we have fellowship with him while we walk in darkness, we lie and do not practice the truth. But if we walk in the light as he is in the light, we have fellowship with one another, and the blood of Jesus, his son, cleanses us from all sin. If we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves, and the truth is not in us. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. If we say we have not sinned, we make him a liar and his word is not in us. So far, our text. Brothers and sisters, have you ever heard the term imposter? Or maybe if you're under 40, the term poser. A poser is someone who pretends to be someone or something that they are not. They try to create a false impression usually in order to receive some sort of benefit like popularity or even a job. 
In previous eras, we might have used the word imposter to describe this, even though maybe it's a stronger word. You see, we see this phenomenon in our daily lives more often. How many of us have hired someone or seen someone hired who claimed to have certain skills? But when it came down to it, they didn't have the skills that they claimed to have. For example, on the first day of work, when someone had said that they could drive the forklift, when they got onto the forklift, it became clear that they couldn't drive it when they smashed into the racks. The person was a poser, someone who is, claims to be something or someone that they are not. Now, the question then becomes, how do you recognize such a person? How do you recognize a poser? Well, on the internet, I stumbled upon a thread when I typed this into Google, this question. And I stumbled upon a thread on wikihow.com, which said this, how to differentiate between a real skateboarder and a poser skateboarder. Now bear with me, this is interesting. It's serious business for skateboarders, apparently, because there are three ways in which you can identify a poser skateboarder. Number one, by testing their knowledge in conversation. Do they know skateboarding terms, such as kickflip or ollie? And number two, you can observe their actions. How does said person ride? How do they hold their board? Are they, you can tell if they're genuine. And number three, by inspecting their appearance. A real skateboarder, apparently, will have bruises and scrapes from trying new tricks. Their board will have damage and their shoes will be tattered. I did not know that, but it's apparently the truth. Now, why do I bring this up? Because this is fascinating, these three methods. Because in, the, in our passage today, the Apostle John is actually doing something quite similar to this skateboard thread. The Apostle John is asking a very similar question. How do you know who a true Christian is versus a false Christian? Who is only posing as a Christian? And that's a very important question. Because in the churches that John is writing to, there are false teachers. Teachers who claim to belong to God and to teach the word of God, but who are not from God. And the way that you could discover these teachers was by the way that they lived. And we'll get into this now, but the message today comes then with this theme. A true Christian walks in the light of Christ. Number one, by walking the talk, and number two, by confessing their sin. And so let's go into our text, and we'll start at verse 1 to see how John works this argument out. We'll read verse 1 again. Verse, verse, or verse 5, rather. The first verse of our text. This is the message we have heard from him and proclaimed to you, that God is light and in him is no darkness at all. Now, we need to know right away that what John is doing in this first verse is he's offering us or giving us a foundational statement on which he's going to build the rest of his argument. And that foundational statement is, God is light, and in him is no darkness at all. This is the big statement, the, the truth, 
And John's going to build on that as the passage goes on. So let's talk about this. What does it mean that God is light? What is John saying with such a statement? Well, he's saying two things, mainly. In the first place, when he says God is light, what John is saying that God is perfectly holy. There's not a shred or a sliver of sin in God. Light, of course, is a great illustration of that, isn't it? I mean, think about it. When you turn your bedroom light on in your bedroom, where does the darkness go? Is there any darkness left? No. In the presence of light, there can be no darkness. And it's the same with God and his holiness. He's so holy, there cannot be sin in his presence. That's the first thing. And second, to say that God is light means that God is the light by which all knowledge and truth and wisdom is known in this world. God is the source and the standard of all knowledge, of all that is true. Again, light is an illustration of that. What happens if you walk into a dark room where there's no light? Chances are you're going to stumble around, you're going to bump into everything that's on the floor in that room, and if the room is large, you might even get lost. But if you turn the light on in that room, you can find your way. You know where to walk. That's the way God is with us. When we know God, it's like right, Proverbs 1 through 7 makes that point clear. When we know God, all knowledge makes sense in this world. So God is light. He is pure and holy. He's without sin. He's the source and standard for all knowledge and wisdom. And later sin, we'll find out. Of course, Jesus Christ is the, the fullest expression of such light. He says, I am the light of the world. Okay, foundational truth. We know that this truth. Why is John saying this now? Where's he going? Well, we learn what John is going to do with this in the next verse. Because now John's going to start to work out why it's so important that God is light. This is verse 6. We can read that. If we say that we have fellowship with him while we walk in darkness... We lie and do not practice the truth. If we say we have fellowship with God, we know, if we say we have a relationship with God, yet walk in darkness in our lives, walk in sin, unrepentant sin, we are liars and we do not live the truth. Now remember, John is getting at something. He's getting at the false teachers in the churches. And these false teachers were teaching that you could know God and belong to him, yet also live in unrepentant sin. This was one of the major teachings that was being taught. In essence, the false teachers were teaching that you could have it both ways at the same time. You could know God and have all the benefits of God, Yet also do nothing about your sin. John says, not a chance. That is not how it works. In fact, that is a lie. You see, this is why it's so important that God is pure and holy light. If God is pure and holy light, if there's not a shred of sin in him, then those who know him are going to begin to reflect that. 
If you say you know a God, the God, of pure and holy light, there must be an effect on you. That light must shine in you, even if only dimly. So John's point is clear. Those who know Jesus Christ, who know the Father, begin slowly and imperfectly to walk the talk they just do. If you serve a God who hates sin, you need to hate sin. If you serve a God who is holy, your life needs to begin to reflect that. Now, at this point in the sermon, you might say, you know, what is a heresy or the false teaching of false teachers in the first century have to do with me? I mean, surely most of us would admit that we wouldn't be vulnerable to that kind of a heresy. But I would suggest to you that even though this false teaching is obviously wrong, and all of us who have been in catechism class could recognize that there's something wrong with such a teaching, deep down I think most of us are vulnerable to this. We're tempted by this way of thinking. It's tempting to live this way to some extent. I mean, I'm not here to call everyone out as a poser Christian. What I'm here to say is, don't be tempted by this kind of teaching. You see, Christians too, we love the idea of having a relationship with Jesus and we love the benefits of that. But often, for most of us, it's really hard to abandon our favorite kinds of sin. And too often, we sort of give up on doing that. Right? We want Jesus Christ and our selfish ambition. We say things like, Sure, I believe in Jesus, but right now building my business is, is more important than Jesus. You know, I'll clean up my act after my business is on its way and running. Or we want Jesus Christ and our sexual temptations. We say things like, you know, I know Jesus commands me not to engage in sexual sin. I know that. But you know what? I really need this right now. and It's too, it's too hard to give up. My desires are too strong. Or sometimes we're tempted to live for Jesus Christ and our comfort. We say things like, you know, I'm a follower of Jesus, but don't ask me to give up my comfortable life. Don't you dare ask me to give up my weekend. No, that weekend, that's for me. Or we want Jesus Christ, but we don't really feel the need to be committed to his church. I love Jesus, but I don't really need to make my church or my brothers a priority in my life. You see, we are tempted to believe in Jesus Christ, to call him our Lord, but then to also keep our favorite brands of darkness. And John says, no way. That is not how it works. You can't do that. Verse 7 he points to a better way, which I can read with you. Verse 7. But if we walk in the light as he is in the light, we have fellowship with one another, and the blood of Jesus his Son cleanses us from all sin. Walking in the light. But walking in the light, be careful what John really means here. John is saying that the better way, the way to walk in the light, is to take the sin, we are sinners, 
to take our sin and bring it to Jesus Christ and to depend on Jesus Christ for our salvation. You see, walking in the light is to be cleansed by the Spirit. It's to trust Jesus fully. Not walking in the light is to live on our own terms. It's to have Jesus take care of our salvation, but to live our life our own way. And John's saying, no, you can't do that. If you you got to walk with Jesus. you got to take your whole life and put it under him. And if you don't do that, be careful that actually you might be walking in darkness altogether. What's interesting is that John makes another point here. He says, you know, when you walk with Jesus, then you also walk together with other people who are walking with Jesus. People who walk in the light, people in the church who have fellowship with one another. That's what he says in verse 7. You know, it's a defining feature of Christ's church that its members want to become more like Jesus Christ. Those who don't want to become more like Jesus Christ, who don't want to grow in holiness, don't belong to God's church. Notice the key point. Sinners belong in the church. But not those who don't desire to remove their sin. In fact, that's the basis of for all church discipline, isn't it? You don't have fellowship with the church if you don't want to do anything about your sin. And this is the point that John's making. And this is how he's getting to the false teachers. Because these false teachers think that they can belong to Jesus, yet live their lives in whatever way they feel like. John says, no. True Christians who know Jesus Christ, they know they need to be cleansed by Jesus daily because they know that they are sinners. This brings us to our second point. Or we dig a little bit deeper into what it is, how it is that we admit that we're sinners and go to the grace of Jesus Christ. So we'll go to our second point here. Now, to start our second point, we need to first ask a question. Because the teaching of our first point does lead us to a question, doesn't it? The question is this. If Christ is at work in me, if the Holy Spirit works in my soul. If I'm a Christian, I belong to the church. Is it possible that I would be able to, at some point, get rid of all my sin and reach some level of perfection? Is that what John's teaching when he says, walking in the light? Is he teaching some idea of Christians reaching a level of perfection, that I have the Holy Spirit, I can remove my sin? Is that what John's getting at here? Well, we read in verses 8 and 10 that that is not what he's getting at. We'll read verses 8 and 10 where John answers this question. Verse 8. If we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves and the truth is not in us. And verse 10. If we say we have not sinned, we make him a liar and his word is not in us. This, remember, This letter is written to Christians, not to unbelievers. And John is saying, yes, Christians are sinners. 
and they cannot claim not to be. Again, the false teachers are involved here. John is refuting false teaching. The false teachers were going around in the church and they were saying two things. They were saying, I know God. And they were also saying, you know what? I'm not really a sinner. Because I know God, I'm not really a sinner. But their lives were full of sin. Why? This is because sometimes our favorite tactic as Christians to avoid admitting our sin is to redefine sin as not sin. And this is what the false teachers were doing as a way to justify the way they were living. And John says, no way. That's not how it works. Any Christian who claims to be without sin is lying. And John defines sin for us in chapter 3, verse 4. John says, sin is lawlessness. Sin is the opposite of everything that God says in his law. God says not to kill. Sin is to hate and kill. God says honor your parents. Sin is to dishonor your parents. God says do not bear false witness. Sin is to lie, cheat, and damage reputations and to gossip and slander. And so the point is, if a Christian says that he or she is sinless, he or she is actually saying that he or she is perfectly obedient to God's law. You see, the false teachers were saying, I'm sinless, but their standard for determining sin had stopped being God's law. Now, we instinctively know this is wrong. To consider yourself to be without sin, according to John, is to lie. It's not the truth. But I would go one step further, and I would suggest that to admit that you are without sin is also dangerous. Why? Well, one of the first church fathers said this, Let no one deceive you, brothers. Not to know your sin is the worst kind of sin. Or another church father said, It is pride to presume that it is easy not to sin, since the presumption itself is sin. It's pride to presume that it is easy not to sin, since the presumption itself is sin. You might ask, why is the sin of assuming that I'm sinless so bad? Well, if you won't call sin, sin, then you might be tempted to call it good, like the false teachers were doing. And if you call sin good, and you redefine it, then people will sin willingly with a clear conscience. Think about it. If you don't think stealing is wrong, why would you stop doing it? If, you don't, if it's not wrong to look at pornography, then why stop? To not call sin, sin is to lose the battle before it even starts. And this is what was happening with the false teachers in John's letters. They stopped calling sin, sin, and so they stopped fighting it, and then they just lived in it. Again, this comes home to us too. We may not hold to such blatant false teaching, sure, but like them, we are tempted to live our lives as if we're effectively sinless, aren't we? 
We often live as if we're mostly perfect, especially mature Christians. We are tempted to live as if we are mostly perfect and we rarely sin. Many, if not most Christians, say outwardly, they confess what it says in the confessions. Yes, I'm sinful. But in practice, we don't always believe it's true. Our pride tempts us to minimize or ignore our sin. You might ask, how do you know that? How do you know who we are, Ancaster? Well, I'm not getting this information from what I know about Ancaster. I know this because this is how I live. I'm guilty of living as if I'm mostly sinless. I'm proud. I tend to think I'm a pretty good person. And you know what? It gets worse in seminary. Because now when you go to seminary, people think that you must be a good person. Because how could a bad person go to seminary? Because I think I'm a pretty good person, I've developed some strategies to avoid admitting that I'm a sinner. And I'll share them with you. Here's the first one. Probably my favorite. It's the one that I've learned from Eve or sorry, Adam, actually. It's called blame shifting. Blame shifting is when I, instead of admitting my sin, I shift the blame for my sin onto someone else. You know, I say things like, it's not my fault I got angry. You know, it was my children. My children pushed my buttons. Another strategy is uh, we could call blame sharing. Instead of admitting sin, we say things like, you know, everybody does it, so it's not a big deal. In fact, I've heard this said in this way. You know, everyone else bullied that other kid at school too, so it wasn't wrong when I did it, was it? Another strategy is to define it away. You change the definition of sin so that what God calls sin, I stop calling sin. A classic strategy of the false teachers in John. In fact, as a seminary student, my education has made me better at this than before. You see things like, you know, it's not stealing to cheat on my taxes, is it? Stealing is only stealing if I take money from someone else. How could it be stealing when I cheat in order to keep my own money? Taxation is theft anyway, right? Or is it? I also engage in justifying my sin. I try to find good reasons or excuses for what I did. Say things like, and I've said this before myself, I'm allowed to torrent movies on the internet. You know, I'm a student. I don't have any money anyway. So it's not a big deal if I, if I steal these movies, is it? I wouldn't buy them anyway. Finally, the final strategy is that I also attempt to ignore or deaden my sin. And this is a rather prominent strategy for many people. Instead of thinking about the fact that you sinned or the guilt that you carry... You just try to think about something, something else instead of admitting and calling your sin what it is. 
Just think about, let's just not think about it anymore. Let's just turn the TV on and we'll just put it away. You see, we are tempted, aren't we, to live like the false teachers more than we realize. We want to believe that we're sinless. We hate, we hate admitting that we're sinners. Intellectually, it's easy to admit that I'm a sinner, but deep in my, really, in my life, when the sin really hits the road, it's really, really hard. But at this point, we need to remember something. We need to remember that sin itself is deception. Sin wants to deceive you. In fact, it often succeeds in deceiving you. Sin entered the world through the deception of Eve. So what do you think sin is doing in your life right now? Satan loves it. The first thing he tries to do is to deceive you into thinking that your sin doesn't exist. Because once he does that, he owns you. That's a huge problem. First of all, because not admitting that I'm a sinner in my daily life is not only untrue and dishonest. And secondly, the problem is that when you stop seeing the sin in your life for what it is, you don't need Jesus Christ. And this is the biggest problem of all. A low view of sin leads to a low view of Christ's forgiveness. If you're sinless, why on earth would you need Jesus Christ? What role does he play in your life? In reality, if you don't admit that you're a sinner, then all Jesus Christ is is a chariot into heaven. The cross is, the, is merely an inconvenient bump on the way. This is where the good news comes in, because John is going to teach us a better way, which we read in verse 9. A better way to deal with sin instead of ignoring it. This is what we read in verse 9. But, or... If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. See, the better way, the better way, the only way, really, instead of ignoring or minimizing sin or just not even looking for it, the better way is to be honest with God and tell him about your sin, to admit it and to bring it to him, to confess. Confession here is two words, two Greek words, homo logio. Homo, which means the same, logio, which means word or saying. And so in basic terms, to confess your sin is to say the same thing about it that God says about it. God says it's sin, I say it's sin. And I tell God. And so when we confess, then three things need to happen. When we confess, we need to know our Bibles and we need to use God's yardstick for our sin and not our own. That's the first thing we need to do when we confess. We do not determine what is sin and what is not sin. God does. This is why it's important to know the Word of God because if you don't know the Word of God, you're going to have a hard time knowing what's sin and what's not. The second place, when you read God's truth, you know what God says about your sin. You then need to actually apply it to yourself. Not to other people, to you. 
You need to pray for the Spirit of God to show you your sin and to give you the courage to see it for what it is. Maybe you even need friends or spouses to help you. And after that, you then need to actually confess. You need to come before the throne of God and say, God, I did this. I did this. This is the sin. And you need to name it specifically if you can. I did this and I need you. Sometimes you need to confess to other people too. And here's where the gospel is now at its greatest. When you confess your sin, know this. When you confess your sin and you throw yourself upon the mercy of Jesus Christ, when you admit that you are powerless over your sin, that you are unable to prevail over them, you at that moment are ready to exercise faith. Because in that moment, you are ready to admit that you need Jesus Christ. And don't be, make no mistake, the moment at which you are at your lowest and the most ready to go to Jesus Christ is your greatest moment. Sometimes we think that life is about, our greatest moments are those moments when we got everything together and we're, we can come before the Lord and say, girl, I got this. Not so. At that moment, you are far from God. Your best moment in this life is the moment in which you are in the trenches and you say, I need Jesus Christ, my Lord, and without him I am finished. And when you confess your sin truly, that's where it will bring you. And what happens when Jesus Christ hears you and sees you come to him? What does he do? He doesn't get angry. He doesn't turn you away. This is the greatest thing of all, this whole thing. When you're ready to confess truly and come to Jesus Christ, he responds, and this is what John says, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. When we confess, God forgives us. He cancels our sin. He takes your sin and he puts it on himself and he takes it away. And don't make no mistake, he's the only one who can do that. Nobody else can do that. And so when you don't bring it to Jesus, that means your sin sits and festers. It has no outlet. It has no place to go. It'll carry it with you to your grave. But when you bring it to Jesus, it's removed. It's taken away. It's forgiven. And not only is it forgiven, but Jesus is now going to work to cleanse you. He's going to send the Spirit to fight against sin in your life. He's faithful and he's just. Faithful, which means he will do it. And he's just, which means that he's satisfied the justice of God that you deserve for your sin. This is important. Sometimes we talk about free grace. Grace is not free for the... Jesus gives you grace, and it's free for you, yes. But grace is expensive. Jesus had to satisfy the justice of God. And that's why you can receive free grace. But he's saying here that, John is saying here that Jesus will give you his grace freely for you. All you need to do is confess your sin and believe that he will forgive Right? Isn't this the gospel in its full glory, isn't it? 
The good news of Jesus Christ means that even though you are more sinful than you ever dared imagine, you're also more loved and forgiven than you dared imagine. And that's Tim Keller. Right? Tim Keller says that. But we need to go, I want to reinforce the point a little bit more. Sometimes it's also hard, once we, sometimes a lot of us live with a heavy burden of guilt. And we struggle, we, we know our sin fully. It, it drags us down day after day. Well, we know it. But we struggle to believe in the forgiveness of Jesus Christ. What I want to do is go to Luke 7 here. Luke 7, Jesus, and in Luke 7, Jesus is sitting in the house of a Pharisee. He's sitting in the house of a Pharisee. Verse 37, Luke, uh, Luke 7, verse 37. And behold, a woman of the city who was a sinner, when she learned that he was reclining at a table in the Pharisee's house, she brought a, a flask of ointment, and she stands behind him at his feet, and weeping, she began to wet his feet with tears. This is a woman, a woman of the city, most likely a prostitute. An occupation of great shame in Jerusalem. She's lived her whole life sinning horribly. She's got nothing to offer Jesus Christ. In fact, the fact that she dares to walk into a Pharisee's house is a great insult. And here's what's the most remarkable fact of this story. Right? Jesus has lots to say to the Pharisee in this story. It goes, hey, this passage goes on for quite some time, and he tells, a, he tells a parable to the Pharisee, he talks to the Pharisee, all sorts of stuff. But what does he say to the woman? Verse 48. And he said to her, Your sins are forgiven. And in verse 47, he explains himself. Her sins, which are many, are forgiven, for she loved much, but he who is forgiven little loves little. For the woman who is a sinner and has been sinning day after day, blatantly, publicly, she comes to him, she throws herself at his mercy, and what does Jesus do? Simple sentence. Your sins are forgiven. You see, this is where the gospel is. This is what John is getting at. The false teachers don't get it. They think that life is about just attaching yourself to Jesus and then living your life in whatever way you see fit. But John is saying, no. The Christian life is a life in which we confess our sin. We view it honestly. We admit it. We're broken by our sin. And when we're broken by sin, we go to Jesus Christ, we ask him for forgiveness, and he gives it. He just gives it by grace. And the more we know our sin, the greater forgiveness becomes. It's like the, 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 growing, the cross grows between the two. And this is what John is getting at. 
And when you, here's the, the great key to all of this is that when you live this way, when you look at your sin, you confess it, you receive forgiveness, that is an engine of growth in your life. When you live that way, you can finally grow as a Christian. You can mature, and Jesus will cleanse you of your sin. It's walking in the light. And so if you're here today, and you don't know Jesus Christ, or you've been far from him, go to him. Admit that you're a sinner, and he'll, he'll respond to you with four simple words. Your sins are forgiven. And this is the way we can live then, in a way of health, in a way of light, in a way of truth. It's not an easy way. It's a hard way. But it's the way in which true peace, true joy is found. The way of darkness is a way of frustration, a way of festering sin. It's a way of difficulty. It will only destroy you. And remember, darkness is not just sin. Darkness is refusing to let God deal with your sin. It's the false way. Don't be tempted by it. The way, the true way, is to do the hard work of lifting your sin up to Jesus Christ and putting it on him, and he'll take it away. Don't, don't walk away from here without knowing this, without doing this. It doesn't matter how many years you sit in this church. If you don't go to Jesus Christ with your sin, he can't take it and won't take it away. You need Jesus. Go to him. He will not disappoint you. He will not turn you away. Amen.